Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Professor Yana Galus of UCLA Anderson. We talk about the economics of non-financial awards and how incentives can be created and designed to motivate human behavior. Yana shares with us her methodology and results of a recent study in which she carried out a field experiment on the future behavior of editors on Wikipedia from a purely non-financial awards perspective. Yana also explains that the results of this behavior is also prominent among academics when receiving honors and awards. Yana also shares with us her writing tips, who she would like to meet if time travel was possible, as well as some recommended books to read. You can check out all these recommendations on the show notes page at economicrockstar.com forward slash Yana Galus. J-A-N-A-G-A-L-L-U-S. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. It's not just that others give me prestige or praise or love, but it's also the self-signal that I want to see myself as being that individual who deserves it, right? Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Yana Gallus join me today. Hi, Yana. Welcome to the show. Hi, Frank. Pleasure to be here. Yana Gallus is an assistant professor in the strategy group at UCLA Anderson. Professor Gallus's research interests lie in behavioral economics and strategy with a focus on non-financial incentives and their effects on decision making. Yana investigates how incentive schemes can be designed to enhance employee motivation and organizational performance in the private and non-profit sectors. Yana joined UCLA from Harvard, where she was a postdoctoral fellow. She received her PhD in economics from the University of Zurich with the distinction summa cum laude and holds two master's degrees from Sciences Po Paris in France and the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. Yana describes herself as an economist with a keen interest in studying and designing incentives to motivate human behavior. Her research and teaching lie at the intersection of strategy, economics, and psychology. Yana, I'd love to pick up on that last point, which I took directly from your website, yanagallus.com, that your research and teaching lie at the intersection of strategy, economics, and psychology. And this is something that has been a theme within some of my episodes, except for the strategy part. And I'd love to see how all that blends together for you and your research. And your teaching. Sure, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. So what really got me started was this interest in what motivates people, you know, as the basic question. And in particular, I was intrigued by the observation that so often our behavior is actually driven by this desire to be held in esteem by others, right? And now to talk about the intersection right away. So you can see how this links economics, where we usually had this focus on financial incentives, But now I wanted to, of course, broaden this to also consider and really study the causal effects of non-financial incentives and rewards, such as honors and awards. And uh, so you see where the link is between economics and psychology, of course, but then strategy also, because this is relevant for organizations in the for-profit and non-profit sector when it comes to designing incentive schemes such that they optimally motivate employees or members of the organization and uh, minimize the risk that they can backfire, which we know also happens.
happens, right? So we now know quite a bit about when monetary incentives backfire. And that is what, as a PhD student in economics, coming across that literature, that motivated me and really um, inspired this question of which alternatives we have to motivate people. And of course, that is super relevant, in particular, when it comes to basically contributions to public goods, like extra role behaviors in society, but also within organizations like helping employees where for various reasons, the economic incentives and contracts that we as economists tend to study uh, reach their limitations because um, for one, it's not really easy to devise, to design contracts and to to define ex ante what behavior you expect your employees to to engage in, but also to measure that behavior. Think of helpfulness. That's like super tricky to measure. But then also because now we know that comes from the psych psychology literature that there is crowding out of intrinsic motivation, but also of image motivation when people do good and then they receive money. And that actually puts in question their original motivations, right? So it might actually not be in their interest to, to uh, waive the big paycheck for what they've done because that dilutes the signal of merit. And then uh, lastly, also for nonprofits in particular, it's, it is tricky that to motivate volunteers because they oftentimes face a budget constraint that just makes it impossible to use money to compensate employees. And that's a tricky situation to put individuals in relation to the companies and the contracts that they make up. And most of these contracts are based on a monetary incentive. Right. But it gets to a point where you may have a diminishing return based on, say, incremental increases on your wage or your financial reward. And people desire a different type of reward or, or an, an, an honor or an award. So, as you pointed out correctly, and I've come across literature and I've read something like this on before, and I couldn't put my finger on it, but people who receive non-financial rewards may give more. And I've, I think I actually came across it on a free economics podcast before, actually, in that if you offer somebody money for a, a favor, they might feel disgusted that they're actually being offered this money. They prefer to do it for, for nothing and get the the recognition for having done that and having been helpful. Correct. Yeah. Just imagine, I mean, this is one nice anecdote that I like about it and uh, that I think makes it pretty clear is just imagine you're invited to friends, right? And then to a dinner and uh, yes. then you, uh, at the end, you pull out your paycheck and say, Hey, thanks. Let me compensate you for you. What value should I put on this? That's already where it starts getting tricky, right? Putting a number yes. on it. But then also it's just socially awkward. On top of that, what is interesting, so I've had a particular focus on honors and awards. And that's basically public recognition, right? And if you think about um, normally in most contexts, if you want to use monetary incentives, you have to put a number on it. And then for the person receiving that monetary that sum of pay, it is difficult to communicate it to others. So in most organizations, employees aren't even allowed to talk about their bonuses, right? So this um, the way of 
signaling how good you are in a way the mechanisms to signal how good you are are very much limited because you're not allowed to tell your peers and even if you were it would be very awkward to tell the person next to you um, about the sum of money that you just received right and honors in contrast are by definition public so you do have automatically an audience built in and then it gets picked up by let's say media or within the company in the company newsletter and that really magnifies its effect and also may make it a more long-lasting than monetary um, sums of pay. So I have a study where I actually find um, that's a field experiment on Wikipedia and I'd be more than happy to talk about that later, where I actually find that the effects of purely non-financial awards, purely symbolic awards have persisted for an entire year, which is super interesting, in particular compared to our what we call the gift-giving literature, where, where we usually study money that's given as by surprise, and there we only see that the effects that we do find effects, but they don't persist for very long, just a couple of hours. And in this context, I find that these effects actually persist for a year, which is, and then they only become statistically insignificant. But I can still point to a difference; it's just no longer statistically significant. Uh, and we see a lot of these honors and awards in academia as well. Mm -hmm. And you know, you just look at some economists, and they have on their CV a vast list of honors and awards, and. That adds to their, I'm sure, their credibility and encourages them to put more literature out there. And did you find anything in the academic circle in your research or is this something that would interest you in the near future? Yes, indeed. So this was one of the studies that I conducted with um, my PhD advisor, Bruno Frey, in Switzerland at the time at the University of Zurich and uh, colleagues in Australia, Benno Torkler and Hufai Chan. And we studied what the effect is of receiving one of the most prestigious awards for economists in academia, which is the John Bates Clark Medal. So we wanted to get at the effect. And also um, what the effect is of becoming an econometric society fellow. Of course, it's always super difficult to establish causal effects of awards because by definition, they are meant to be given to the best. So if you observe later on that the award recipients outperform the non-recipients, it's difficult to claim that the award had any effect because the jury might have just done its job and selected the best. But yeah, to, long story short, so we use um, a the synthetic control method to construct synthetic twins, basically, for each award recipient, and then just compare what happens to their publications and also the citations to work that they have published before receiving that honor to see whether there's a difference in the performance trajectories. And indeed, we find that those the people receiving the John Bates Clark Medal or becoming Econometric Society Fellows later on published significantly more. And, of course, you were hinting already at the status effect that you receive more um, attention also from your community of peers and even outsiders, we also find that their work draws significantly more attention in the form of citations by peers in the literature. So that's super interesting. That was one of the studies that I also did during my PhD. And can I ask you about the synthetic twins? Are these two individuals that have the same type of background, the same publications at one particular point in time, and then you put these two together and see how much they deviate based on the award that they get. 
Correct. So basically, we construct a synthetic twin um, from a sample of 20, roughly 27,000 researchers, and we put together this synthetic person that really mirrors the award recipient's performance on the one hand in the proxy by publications, quality-weighted publications where we take into account the journal's ranking also, but also stable characteristics such as the degree-granting institution where, where they receive their PhD and when they receive their PhD, when they had their first journal publication, these more um, stable characteristics. And then we really construct a twin that exactly mirrors the award recipient's performance and you can see that the lines really are parallel, are, they overlap, they are identical basically, but then once the award, this basically the status shock comes in afterwards, they diverge. Would that be known as an exogenous shock? Would that be an example of an exogenous shock on an individual? I know these are typical of, say, at a macro level, but from, a, from an individual perspective, the John Bates-Clark medal could be seen as that? Well, that is tricky because it's not really exogenous. That's our problem. That's why we have to use this matching technique because they are, of course, like the best in their fields, right? So we have to construct a co comparison group. So it's not, it's not exogenous, the John Bates Clark medal per se, but, um, we can, what we can do is like these matching, we can use these matching techniques. Also another way of identifying causality, the causal effect of awards is to, um, run field experiments. And that is something that I've done in other papers to come closer at this motivational effect also. Because, of course, you could argue that even if we observe that their publications afterwards increase, that is likely due to a motivational effect, that they become more motivated or even feel that they have to show that they deserve the honor or that they start comparing themselves to those Nobel laureates who also beforehand were John Bates Clark medalists and now um, basically have a new peer group or have a more salient peer group of superstars that they try to be on par with, to compare favorably to. And they, of course, see the Nobel Prize ahead of them because a number of those Clark medalists, I think 12 right now, if my numbers are still up to date, have gone on, 12 out of 38, I guess, have gone on to receive the Nobel Prize. So the That's a good predictor. Yeah. <laughs> the jury is obviously doing a good uh, job as well. But in this case, you can see how it's difficult to claim that this is a motivational effect, right? They could also yeah. benefit, and um, that's another reason why this is difficult, of course, from the increased status and others become aware of their work, they might get more and better, in particular, better co-authors and these kinds of status-related uh, mechanisms could also explain that they go on to publish better. I wonder if, if there are any behavioral issues in terms of the person who failed to receive the John Bates Clark Medal and mm -hmm. that could they feel some kind of disappointment and become more withdrawn in terms of how they could have been if they had got it? like as you said mm -hmm. it's more of a motivational factor in terms of receiving this award and it, not receiving it does it have the opposite effect? That is a very good question. This is something that I'm um, targeting now with my more recent work. In that context, we did not study the effect on non-winners. To our advantage, these non-winners, at least our control group, were not really non-winners in the sense of, let's use Schelling's term, an identifiable victim, although here in a different context, of course, because this these were synthetic twins. So that person 
does not exist, right? And um, it's composed of different attributes from other researchers. So in a, in a way, we are attenuating this loser's effect and really comparing it to a good, relatively good control group. But of course, and that's why the, the effect, third-party effects are super important. When you hand out awards, as I was saying as an introduction, right, awards are meant to be public. So almost by definition, you're creating non-winners. And I'm intrigued by the question of how we can design award schemes such that that ideally these effects on non-winners are positive. Be it that they now strive to achieve the award in the future or want to show that the jury should have awarded them and made a mistake by not awarding them and thus, thus increase their performance and might go on to receive other awards. By the way, the John Bates Clark Medal can only be given to economists under the age of 40. So at one point you really cross the threshold, but then you may still, of course, get the Nobel Prize. But then also what I find very interesting is external, so spillover effect in the sense what is called um, sometimes basking in reflected glory. So individuals, although they did not receive the honor, they feel they identify with the award winner. And in a sense, the award given for specific um, performance in a given field puts a value on a positive light on that field and thus also benefits others engaged in similar activities. This can be an economics. So you're basically legitimizing a specific methodology or a specific course field of economics. But this can also, of course, um, be in the case of voluntary work, right? So if a volunteer is recognized, and oftentimes what we do find is that in particular for those extra role behaviors, awards tend to be given and meant to be given in a representative manner so that the individual standing there is a role model, but stands there as a representative of all the people engaged in similar activities. And lastly, of course, a topic that normally when I talk about awards, people come up with right away, of course, is like in the cultural sector, right? There you have also a great range of awards and there have been two papers looking at how awards can be used to structure a field. Because, of course, by giving out awards, the let's say here the Academy, the Oscars, they are establishing what's considered high quality, right? And in that, that way, they really structure and influence also the paths that newer generations will take. From your research on awards and honors, have you found a statistic that could summarize the economic benefits of these? And whatever field or discipline. Ooh, that's a great question. That could be a goal for my research program in Thai. So I do, I'm not able to put a number on the value of awards in a specific field, but that's a good question. Yeah. I should think about that more closely, more carefully, but uh, no, I, I would be hesitant to put a value on it. <laughs> While you were talking about awards, and motivation. What brought me back was Maslow's, I think it was Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, how does that fit into economics? Because that is somewhat a, lies into management and organization and perhaps strategy. Well, you can see awards in a way, once your basic needs are fulfilled, right, we can see how other aspects of life and work become more relevant. And it is, that's in fact also an important point in that we should not, or we should be careful when using awards in contexts where these basic needs are not yet fulfilled. So you can think of, let's say again, voluntary, voluntary work or global, in the context of global health, that is a project that I'm also working on with colleagues. 
So there, individuals tend, there are certain works for which um, the people fulfilling it in their communities, they do not receive any kind of compensation, right? And those are oftentimes, those global health workers are oftentimes poor individuals themselves, right? And in that context, then using non-financial incentives in a way to try to get them do that work without actually giving them any form of payment might be seen as a cheap substitute for adequate pay, right? So in this, there might be a certain threshold um, of pay, of wages, starting from which awards and honors become effective. But under that threshold, it is tricky to use them because individuals could arguably say that at first they would need some money to feed themselves and their families before you start trying to motivate them by using honor. You've also done a lot of research on happiness. And it's something that, again, was a theme of some episodes. And in terms of the reach it has for the public, it branches off into a lot of disciplines in terms of philosophy and psychology. And and I'm just wondering, how does happiness fit into economics? Uh, Because we never come across it in, say, principles or at undergrad level anyway, I've never remember coming across anything like this. Mm. Yeah, well, it ties into our concept of utility, right? And then the question, oh, yes. indeed, if you go back and read Bentham, he has some very interesting work where he did, um, looks at different, I believe it was eight different sources of utility where you can see, and then if you can compare those, it's also related to self-esteem as well, the motivation to be held in esteemed by others, and I don't recall these eight, but if you look at those, you will realize immediately that what economists have focused on for the longest time was what was um, what we could arguably model in a rather reliable way. So other aspects that are important and that everybody would consider to be important have been neglected because it well, that's my now um, explanation because it's tricky to model them in adequate ways and to measure them. But in recent years, those measurements of subjective well-being have be- been shown to be very reliable. And so that's become now, since it's more measurable, we can um, integrate that better in our economic theory as well. This is a, basically a proxy or the proxy for utility and, and um, well-being, right? I was speaking to Russ Roberts recently on the podcast and we were talking about Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments Mm. and a lot of the team, a lot of the team seems to be on happiness. And Russ was saying in terms of interpreting Adam Smith's work and it ties in with your own in terms of your non-monetary financial incentives or non-financial incentives Mm -hmm. that that's not what makes people happy. Money does not make people happy. There's a finite a reward that you get from a monetary incentive that the main issue in terms of what Adam Smith was talking about in his philosophies and how he applies it to economics is people want to be loved praised. and praised and be praiseworthy. Yes. And that ties in. So I, I, I'm just trying to see the link here and I do see the link here between your work on the power of awards and the economics of awards and going into your research on happiness And do you identify or can you link those two together in terms of your research? Or was this something that was done by accident that you happened to find two separate areas in the economics and that go very well, well together? I would not say it's by, it is by accident because, um, of course, if you 
get utility from feeling from getting praise and being praiseworthy as well, right? That, that increases your happiness on the one hand in a very sustainable fashion. And on the other hand, um, that also motivates you to continue to engage in that behavior, right? So you can really see how happiness and motivation are inherently linked with one another, right? So if you're, of course, there's also something to be said about a certain feeling of discontent and how this can, or at least that's the difference between also happiness in a more momentary uh, manner and life satisfaction, right? That a certain feeling that you want to achieve more, a certain still is, is discontent the right word when you're not like perfectly happy in this moment that might actually also foster um, and spur you to, to produce more, but that will feed in ultimately into your, your well-being. And also these uh, nice quotes from Adam Smith. I also really liked the theory of more sentiments, as you can imagine that also shows very nicely how it's not just about the social signals, praise, but also the self signals praiseworthy, right? It's not just that others give me prestige or praise or love, but it's also the self signal that I want to see myself as being that individual who deserves it, right? And that is a very healthy kind of motivator because you can see how it holds the individual accountable in and of itself rather than in comparison to monetary incentives where we have this multitasking problem where once you start defining it, people will just do whatever it takes to get the rewards and then they sh start shifting all their attention on what's being measured and compensated for in monetary terms, right? And they will forget about those aspects which may be very important but just are not in the performance catalog, such as helpfulness, right? And they may even engage in, in strategic behavior, right? Manipulating, playing the, the game. And have you looked at that part of the manipulation or playing the game or is, is that as evident or harder to detect? Um, it is, of course, as you were saying, it's difficult to detect. In my research, in my empirical research, I have not yet um, found any effects any like manipulation or multitasking effects also. But of course, I built my empirical research, in particular, the field experiments I'm running on what we know from Holmstrom and others very early on, but then also later research. So for instance, when I set out, so I ran one field experiment um, with Wikipedia. Wikipedia, as you know, there are millions of people contributing voluntarily to this public good online. And what is very interesting for economists, they do so under pseudonyms. So this prestige benefit is really just limited to this online community, right? These social image benefits. And Wikipedia, as you probably have heard, is struggling with editor retention and in particular newcomer retention. So it's become increasingly difficult to keep people motivated to contribute for various reasons, but I won't go into those right now. But there, I when I saw that, I thought, well, this is interesting. Um, they do face a severe problem and I might have one solution to mitigate that problem. And so I reached out to the community and was lucky enough that several very well-established editors were willing to tackle that problem with me and see whether awards and awards theme could be used. So they lent me their reputation in the community and also their support. 
And then now to come back to that point of multitasking and manipulation, what, so I had freedom to design this award scheme and, and, and also always in collaboration with the community. And what was very important is that the award was not tied to clearly defined performance criteria because those risk inducing exactly that multitasking where people just start um, let's say in the context of Wikipedia, increasing their edit count without this actually uh, adding value because you can, you can increase your edit numbers just by click hitting on save a number of times for minor edits. And that would, if I, if the award was based on this metric, we would probably induce people to do exactly what we are asking them to do, namely to increase their edit count, but it would be difficult um, to make sure that the quality is still of each single edit is still held constant or optimally even increased. And how could you motivate them to keep uploading content on Wikipedia or have you? Yeah. So, so the, the purpose of that study, as I said, was to see whether we can foster newcomer retention. So it was really the question, can we increase retention through a purely symbolic award scheme? And what the nice features of Wikipedia from an economist perspective were several. So first of all, the use of pseudonyms makes it possible to really study purely symbolic awards without any material or career-related benefits. Because normally when we study awards in the field, it is difficult to argue that any motivational effect that you might find was due to the honor and recognition rather than to the pecuniary benefit that come along with most awards, right? People could always argue that, yes, that person, the John Bates Clark Medal, ultimately will have hard and financial tangible benefits will bring tangible benefits. But in this context, since people use pseudonyms, nobody in the real world knows that it's them. I could argue that this is studying purely symbolic honors. And the next advantage was that I was able to, to randomize so that I'd be able to cleanly identify the effects, the causal effects of receiving an award on future behavior. So basically, I applied a basic script to filter to first, I extracted the list of the previous month's newcomers. And then I applied, I developed an algorithm to make sure that I would sort out, filter out any vandals or firm accounts. And so that everybody in this final pool would arguably deserve a newcomer award. And since this is a newcomer award, the performance threshold could arguably be kept very low or rather low, let's say like this, but everybody has contributed something that would merit to be recognized. And then out of my this set final pool, each month, I randomly allocated 150 newcomers into the treatment group who would receive the award and 150 or a bit more would be in the control group. The rest would just stay in the control group. And then I would just go on and compare the future behavior of those in the treatment group who received the award with the behavior of those in the control group. And since everything, the only dimension in which they differ is the award, which was given out by chance, there can be no underlying performance differences or motivational differences or any differences for that matter. So those groups are completely comparable with the only exception that some happened to get the award and the others happened to not get the award. And the award is just a graphic digital symbol that is put on their personal Wikipedia profile pages. And then there's also an award page that's embedded in a national Wikipedia portal, which gives the award considerable 
reputation and prestige. And their pseudonyms would also be inserted in on this page in a kind of a hall of fame. As we so it's really modeled on awards as we observe them in the real world. And with the um, difference that this is an experiment, right? This is so, which means that there is random allocation, a natural field experiment. And then what I find is that, long story short, the most important um, finding is that indeed this purely symbolic award increases the retention rate among newcomers by 20% in the following month. And this um, difference is statistically, but also, of course, substantively highly significant. And um, I also make sure that this is not driven by only minor editing activity, but in fact, the award increases retention even among what are considered high power editors who really contribute a lot. So even those people are motivated by this purely symbolic form of recognition. And as I already mentioned, this the effect of this initial award persists for an entire year. And only then does it become statistically insignificant. And have Wikipedia uh, adopted this approach or was this only a test to identify the retention of the editors? No, I actually, so this was not only a test. I actually made sure, so and there's great interest in this award. In fact, the award has also received an award. Yes, I, I, I <laughs> um, can imagine so. <laughs> yeah, and that, that was very motivating for me too, finally, <laughs> not only doing the research on awards, but also experiencing <laughs> what the effect is. So that was very motivating. But indeed, there is a great interest in this award scheme, because as you can imagine, there are not so many ways how you can foster motivation in this context, right? And so this award scheme, and in particular, given that it has such proven or um, illust- well, um, that we have evidence supporting its positive effects, was a very interesting for is very interesting for the community. So I, in fact, this experiment, the data that I analyze, come from eleven award cohorts. So eleven consecutive months in which I gave out this award, always on the same day, to hold everything, to make everything very clean, and on almost the same time even of the day, no matter where I was on that day. But then later on, I had this long period. In fact, even longer, where I was just in a way, giving back, right? So I just gave out this award the same way as before, but I didn't randomize anymore. I just handed it out because that saved me a couple of steps and thus also time, which was very limited towards the end of my PhD in particular. But there I still, I made a point in really continuing to hand out these awards because I've just shown what their effects are. And um, now I will, I'm thinking about ways to take, to continue doing this. And also I was offered support with basically somebody assisting me in this period of giving out the award. So there's great interest also from the Wikimedia and Wikimedia chapters. Um, so that was very encouraging as well. I can see myself taking this up again and possibly ideally extending also the research behind it. Yeah, and it's amazing how a digital award is so motivating for people. <laughs> and we'd see it in some apps on games say for example there's language courses that you can download i forget what the the app is there's an owl anyway but duolingo duolingo yes they offer awards as well and that is a motivating factor for people and it maintains that retention so that people can work through and stay on this application or this website Right. And as as you said, it's not a financial award or honor, but a, a digital or a non-financial one. Mm-hmm. There is a, that's true. And it's super fascinating. If you look at also 
games and um, how much effort and even sometimes money people expend on on getting status in these online communities. The difference, there are several noteworthy differences, though, um, to the Wikipedia study because with this, in these games, with those badges, oftentimes they are tied to clearly identify to clearly defined performance uh, dimensions so you know which threshold you have to reach. And there is research showing that also in other co contexts such as GitHub, which is meant to facilitate um, collaboration on coding and so on, and there are a number of open source projects also that are facilitated or really built up on this infrastructure. You can see how, and then there's Stack Exchange, Stack Overflow, um, how people are motivated by getting more and more badges, right? And there is a nice, there are nice discontinuities so that people would exert a lot of effort just before they stand to reach that badge because they know they just need a couple of, let's say, clicks more. And then after that, it levels off again, right? But in the, in, in contrast to this, this Wikipedia award scheme is really based. It comes from the community. It is, you can see how others. So I also analyzed, in fact, the potential mechanisms why this award, purely symbolic award, has such motivating effect, right? And this is not just in this gaming. It's not just the gaming context, but the social um, context behind it really makes it important. There is a community. There's basically a jury that gave you this award. And so talking about those channels, what I find is that self identification as a member of this community seems to be one reason why this award is so motivating. So you feel like you're being categorized as one of this, as a member of that community. And that in and of itself has a motivating effect. And I find that indeed those individuals are even willing to then engage in behind the scenes community coordination work, which is considered tedious, but super important for the community's health, right? And for the entire project, such as discussing rules, establishing rules. But that's behind the scenes. That doesn't give you any credit, like any status in the community, really. Um, but I find that this effect, because it fosters um, this self-identification as a community member, leads people to engage also in this behind the scenes coordination work. Then I also find that just because of status, and that is, again, very similar to those gaming contexts, right? We do know that people are willing to even spend money and um, incur financial costs to receive status, also from multiple other studies. That is very interesting. And of course, awards are positional goods. So it's no surprise that this, that there is a status and reputational component that makes it um, so motivating, at least for some individuals. And I do find that some of the um, award recipients go on and take the award from their discussion page where I posted those awards and make it even more visible by posting it on their what's called the user page, which is where they introduce themselves to the community. So, And then somebody actually devised an even smaller token that's called a babel, which is meant to, to, for instance, indicate which languages you speak in a very brief way, right? So these are put up on, the, on editors' user pages. Some editors use them to quickly introduce themselves. And you can see it's like a label pin. This award has also been transformed in one, into one of those barbels. And some individuals use this and post it on their user page. So they clearly want to, to make that award more visible. So it, so it clearly counts. And other channels, the, so besides social identity, the self-identification as a community member and status, two other um, mechanisms 
are relevant, one of them being just recognition, receiving recognition from other community members, which may in particular, since we are talking about newcomers, also um, bolster their self-confidence that what they are doing is of value to the community and is actually not that bad, right? And um, the fourth channel is just attention. That comes from the evaluation potential theory, which is from the literature on social loafing, which would say that if individuals perceive that their contributions are being identified and evaluated by others, that makes them less likely to engage in social loafing or vice versa, in this context, more likely to continue to contribute to the public good. And I do indeed find that several individuals think that there were, they, they are able actually to identify specific contributions of theirs that they perceive to have been evaluated and identified by others. So they, it's, it may just be that they feel they are getting attention finally and that they are not quote unquote lost in the crowd. Okay. So it, it gives them that identity out there. On some of your research on happiness and I just mentioned a couple of the papers, open issues and happiness research. And not necessarily tied in with happiness, but the aggregate effects of behavioral anomalies, a new research area. What you do is, and I'd love to be able to explain, you to explain it to me or explain to the listeners. What do you mean by looking at a micro level and aggregating it to a macro or a societal outcome? And how can you do that in terms of identifying how individuals behave at a governmental policy or the effects of governmental policies and try and ex aggregate that to represent uh, the macro. And you clearly identify that the individual happiness could get lost in the aggregation of the, the group or the population. Um, this was again um, research done with um, my PhD advisor, Bruno Frey. And um, there, so basically the argument is, or, or one of the main points we are trying to make is that we should not stop with just observing individuals' behavior in the lab and how specific, let's say in this context to just map into what I've just said, to tie back into this, um, how different incentives have their effect on individuals in the lab and maybe then also on groups in the lab. And we shouldn't just stop there, but we should really link those different research strands that do exist. Also, there's, of course, also research on a more macro level and see how specific effects that we find in the lab might actually be reinforced when looked at at an aggregate level or they might be attenuated or they might even be reversed ultimately. So um, to, to make this point that we should not become too focused on either one of those, micro or macro, but really make sure that we understand the entire hierarchy, basically the entire implications also of what happens once we take this to the macro level. Do you see any divergence or similarities between what happens in the lab and what happens at a macro level or what happens at an aggregate level? Well, of course, in the lab, so there are each methodology and each approach, let's say like this, um, has its advantages, right? But so what you oftentimes, what is for when doing research in the lab, as I also do, is important is that we also consider that we don't draw overconfident, probably, um, implications from these findings in the lab. The lab has its advantages 
advantages in that it, for instance, allows you to cleanly identify causality on the one hand, of course, and that everything is controlled for, right? And that you may be able, for instance, in the context of awards, to um, you may be able to look at the um, relative importance of different channels, of different psychological channels, why awards have for instance, a positive effect in specific under specific conditions and you hold everything else constant. But then, of course, it is important. And sometimes what you find in the lab may, may not map into, into more aggregate, into the society, right? That's like the external relevance and external validity of those lab results that isn't oftentimes also discussed in the papers. Jana, can I ask you a number of quickfire questions, if you don't mind? Sure. If you were to step into the to the DeLorean and time travel, mm. what era would you go back to? Who would you like to meet and what would you ask ask them or what conversation would you think you'd like to have? Mm. That's a good question. So probably, and here you can see how behavioral economics comes in again, I'd want to travel first to the past, ideally the medieval ages, um, to calibrate my reference point. <laughs> and make myself aware and experience how good life is today, <laughs> right? I like the way you put that, calibrate my reference point. So I think that would be healthy, and I think that is something we could all try to do every now and then when we think the past was so much better <laughs> and have so much reason to complain about today. <laughs> so I guess that's the first uh, thing I'd do. Um, other than that, well... It, it is funny that you mentioned Adam Smith again already, but I'd like to have a conversation with Adam Smith about his work in particular, like from a more general perspective and how we can reconcile different strands of that work and possibly have a focus on the theory of moral sentiments. And now third, what would also be quite cool is to travel into the future and benefit from their hindsight bias to learn what they would have done differently. <laughs> and then we actually come back to the present and uh, do that. Would you, if you travel into the future, get an almanac with results of all games, like the way they had done in the actual Back to the Future movie and bring it back and take advantage of the outcomes that you could make yourself quite wealthy? Uh, no. I think then it would become boring. <laughs> yeah. Would you have any writing tips that you'd like to share with us? Because I'd be interested in, given the volume of research that you were doing and I had done in the past, and having experience doing a PhD, which is quite an isolating experience, but something that you have to bring about self-discipline to sit down and write. Mm. Um, now... Conditional on you being very motivated. <laughs> I think that's like the most important that you really love what you're doing and are intrigued and want to learn more about it. And um, maybe here's an interesting, though super simple insight in, that I recently had or like a recent discovery from introspection, which is that to make sure to reserve time for active thinking. And this seems so trivial, but I've realized it for myself. This is super challenging in this day and age where one podcast is better than the next, right? So basically I'm optimizing all the time, right? When I go running, I listen to The Economist or to other podcasts. When I cook in the evenings, I listen to a podcast or watch the news. So it's like every second is optimized, 
right? Even when I stand in the elevator and, and then we stare on our smartphones when it's not a podcast that we're listening to. So there's, it does require, I think, self-discipline to reserve some time for active thinking and um, where you get a bird's eye perspective on what you're doing, what, you're, what your research is all about. That's something that I found that I've always tried to do. And this was also great during my PhD, also with Bruno Frey. We always had amazing discussions and that are not so nitty gritty and focused on the small details, but really like on the more general phenomenon and why it's of interest. Um, let's say, to, for instance, about awards, but also many other um, aspects from an economist's perspective. What help has always helped me is uh, sports. So, for instance, when I go running, as I was uh, mentioning, then I really, even if I listen to podcasts, I can see myself mind wandering and um, how my thoughts would go off and I'd get back to some aspects of my research that I'd otherwise might have actually forgotten. Another tip what I found helpful is to always carry around a small booklet for to keep notes. And what I love is working from on the weekends to work from coffee shops because I like being, I have this coffee shop, coffee, coffee shop sounds so silly, but it's more like coffee houses, right? The coffee, coffee house uh, culture and having discussions, general discussions that might not be instrumental for what you're doing research on right now, but that might uh, sow the seed for some interesting ideas in the future. And reading, lastly, sorry, I, I almost forgot, actually reading books, that's another, um, with the internet, right, you find so many interesting small pieces, articles, but actually what I find very helpful when reading books is that you do, do you say consecrate, you do devote some period of your life to a book. So you're you're um, dealing with that book for a somewhat lengthier period of time, as opposed to when you're just reading a short article, be it an academic article or a newspaper article. So you do deal with something on a more fundamental level and your thoughts keep coming back to this for a longer period of time than would be possible when you just read articles. So I do still think that reading books is a great way. It might not. And again, it doesn't, don't need, doesn't need to be really books that deal directly with what you're doing right now but just to broaden your horizons. But as well as that, they offer, they do offer, I think, anyway, a meditative process, especially when you do exercise and you listen to the podcast and, you know, or, or read or listen to an audible book and even reading, immersing yourself in a book. As you mentioned there, it does plant a seed or it could give you an idea or something could trigger a thought, a process in which you we're trying to work on or try to establish an argument in a piece of writing that you're doing. And I, I think it's fairly effective to do something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And I totally agree with carrying that booklet as well, carry a little notebook because you do <laughs> yeah. want, you don't want to lose those thoughts when they do arrive. Yeah. And it's amazing, isn't it? How you think like, Oh, this is a thought I can't forget. Right. Yeah. But then Luckily, you you take note, and and re later on you realize that there was a thought that you hadn't hadn't remembered, right? Or also the booklet besides the bed. If yeah. at night you come up with an idea, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But those, I guess, are like the standard. I hope they are helpful, and we'll but, see. Looking forward. <laughs> I I often have a piece of paper and on the bedside locker, and I'd be writing in the dark and. I'm hoping that it's legible in the morning and I could be just all over just in case there was something there that I didn't want to miss out on because if I didn't write that down, I wouldn't get to sleep at all because I'd be trying to remember what I was oh, just writing or thinking. 
That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, Jana, would you have a recommended book you'd like to share with us? Ooh, that's a, also a good question. Um, yeah, uh, let me try to think of books that are not on more recent New York Times bestseller lists, like not the obvious picks, right? Yes. Um, so one book that I very much enjoyed was um, Origins of Genius by Dean Simonton. Um, I don't remember which publishing house it was, but it was in the 90s, came out in the 90s. I, of course, read it way later, but <laughs> that's a book I found very interesting. It also speaks to really like creativity as well, right? What we were just talking about. Another book that's more related to awards, but this is from a sociologist's perspective, would be by William Goody, uh, The Celebration of Heroes, Prestige as a Control System. This is slightly more related to what we've just been talking about. And maybe a third, also um, less obvious one, well, for some people this will be very obvious, I guess, is Models of a Man, Essays in Memory of Herbert Simon. Those were really books that I enjoyed, and they, they are all very different, as you can tell. So I hope that everybody would find something in there. And then, of course, more recently, um, I can only... Uh, uh, recommend having a look at the books that my advisor Bruno Frey has written. Hey, yes, of course. There are some, they are awesome, really, truly great. And um, my more recent advisor at Harvard, Iris Bonet, has just published a wonderful book on gender. And the title is What Works? Gender Equality by Design. Yeah, lovely, yeah. And there's, there, there are a diverse collection of books on it's a broad spectrum of content that you could have in terms of the economics and, as you mentioned, sociology too. If you read through those books, I'm sure they trigger a lot of thought as well that you could plant that seed to develop a particular argument. And I'm sure you found a lot in that in your research in terms of awards and happiness. I did. Yes, yes. Those were highly motivating and uh, super interesting reads. Jana, would you like to leave us with a message for the listeners before we wrap up or anything? Hmm. Uh, probably in line with the title Rocket and stay motivated <laughs> Jana thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me in Economic Rockstar I had a blast and I honestly I learned a lot from you Likewise. share again with our listeners where they can find you so as you were mentioning in the beginning I have a website which, which is Jana Gallus that's how Americans would pronounce it I'd say janagallus.com um, I'm also on Twitter with the handle Jana Gallus, surprise. Um, yeah, that's it. And then there's also um, at UCLA Anderson, which is where I'm a faculty member now. I also have a website. You can find all links to Jana at economicrockstar.com forward slash Jana Gallus. Jana, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rockstar. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. <laughs> Staying with the theme of this podcast episode, I would love to end with this quote by Bruno Frey. It is inconceivable that people are motivated solely or even mainly by external incentives. And that's a great way to capture exactly what Jana had been describing in her research. That people aren't solely motivated by external incentives such as financial or monetary awards. 
and they may be more motivated for personal reasons such as self-fulfillment and the need to attain certain goals, personal goals in their life. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.